Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. In Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Celebrate the official beginning of spring this weekend by viewing fantastic outdoor art. Orchid Days at the Atlanta Botanical Garden features sculptures inspired by Alvin Ailey's signature dance work, Revelations. Nearby on the Georgia Tech campus, See an epic sculpture designed by the iconic architect and artist John Portman. And first, in Buena Vista, Georgia, just east of Columbus, sits a visionary art environment on a seven-acre compound known as Pasaquan. Eddie Owens Martin was a self-taught Southern artist who created Pasaquan beginning in the late 1950s and continued his work there for the next 30 years. Columbus State University is directly involved in the conservation and documentation of Pasaquan, Michael McFalls is an art professor at Columbus State and director of Pasuquen. He joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, Lois, and looking forward to the conversation. What can you tell us about Eddie Owens Martin, the creator of this visionary environment? Wow, that's... That's a question that uh, probably would take the whole program because he's a very complex character, to say the least. Eddie Owens Martin was uh, born in a small town just outside of Buena Vista, Georgia, called Glen Alta, Georgia, in 1908. He was born on the 4th of July. He often would claim that he was born at the stroke of midnight. <laughs> so he it just, and he'd often in, introduce himself that way. Hmm. My name's Eddie Owens Martin. I was born in 1908 on the 4th of July at midnight, you know, and right then you kind of get the sense of who this character was. But at the age of 14, Eddie Owens Martin hitchhikes to New York City. He's living in New York during the roaring 20s. He's a hustler. He's working in gay nightclubs. He's going even into the bar scene. He's running, running an illegal gambling ring. And 
at the same time, he's actually creating art. And in fact, in the archives here at Columbus State, we have early pieces of Eddie's that he made while he was in New York City. But while he's in New York, he begins to go to the galleries and the libraries in New York City. And he's, he's kind of teaching himself because he only has an eighth grade education. He's self-taught but he's very interested in the cultural scene. And what ends up happening is that starts impacting the work that you see at Pasaquan. But, you know, that's kind of the beginning, but I will say what ends up happening is in 1935, roughly, he has a vision. He claims that these beings that had arms the size of watermelon, I love that description. This is from the Tom Patterson book, In the Land of Pasaquan. So this being has arms the size of watermelon, came to him and told him to change his ways, or this was the end of the road for him. And at that point, he becomes the, you know, first, and as far as I know, only Pasacoyan. And he starts making work about this kind of pseudo-religion that he develops called Pasacoyanism. And he starts reading tea leaves on 42nd Street to make ends meet. And that's the beginning of Pasaquan. How did he come up with the name Pasaquan? Yeah, there's a couple stories about that. But one of them is that Eddie Martin thought that Pasaquan was a word that kind of merged different cultures, right? Pasa from uh, Mesoamerican culture. And he even said Quan was from Eastern Asian cultures. And he merged these two names together. So if if you ever go to Pasaquan, you will see that Pasaquan, and, and I love this quote from Tom Patterson's book in the land of Pasaquan as well, is, is a mock pre-Columbian psychedelic wonderland. <laughs> it's a place where all cultures and all races and all creeds are kind of merged together in this, this place that kind of celebrates these cultures, right? And so I think in his mind that word Pasaquan kind of uh merges these disparate cultures in one place. So you describe some pretty important influences there from various cultures. If someone walked onto the Pasuquan property for the first time, what would they see? Well, when you enter Pasuquan, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's deep in the heart of the Pines and Marion County. And, you know, just about south, southeast of Columbus, about 30 minutes, 30 minutes drive. But you're, you really feel like you're, there's nothing else there. I mean, in fact, all the land around it is hundreds of acres of pine trees. And then it kind of just emerges off this road. And when you drive up, you will see two large set of eyes looking at you. <laughs> they're, they're on the side of this kiva. And then you turn to the right, you see the kind of front gates of Pasaquam, which are these totem-like figures that stand about seven, eight, eight feet tall. And then walls, large walls that you can't see over again. They're about six, seven feet tall uh, that kind of run the, the property. And, and there are a lot of um, references again to um, especially Mesoamerican and Native American cultures. There's a lot of iconography that's and, and symbols that are, are kind of appropriated from those cultures. But a, a, in many ways, I think Eddie's taking some of these images and in his mind, he's celebrating them. I read that he changed his name to St. 
Om? Yes, and that's a great point. And I, I didn't bring that up. When Eddie had his vision, he changed his name from Eddie Owens Martin to Saint Ohm, but he spells it E-O-M, but he pronounced it Ohm. So the E-O-M is obviously his initials, Eddie Owens Martin. And again, if you're in the Columbus State Archives in the library, you'll, you can go through some old drawings of Eddie's and you'll see that he initially assigning them Eddie Owens Martin or just EOM. And then all of a sudden around that 1935 period, you begin to see that he starts signing them, you know, Saint Ohm. And from there on out, he's signing his work, Saint Ohm. What is the connection between Edward Churchward's books about the lost continent of Mew? Am I saying it right? Is it? Yeah, Mew? that's that's correct. It's the the lost continent of Mew, and it's Edward Churchward's. This Eddie Martin is very interested in this book. I think you have to kind of imagine he's living in New York City. He's self-educating. He's interested in kind of pseudoscience. He's interested in the occult. He's interested in you know he's going to these museums and libraries, and he he runs across this book, and he's reading this book, and. The book really is, it's almost an Atlantis story about the South Pacific. It's this idea of where everything, all, all origins and all races and all cultures, it's, a, it's an origin story for the world or for humankind. When you go into it, it talks about all these archetypes that you find in different cultures. And, and so Eddie is highly interested in this book and you begin to see those influences on the designs at Passaquan, to say the least. I mean, you, you can see that almost in some rooms, they feel like this lost continent immune. Eddie believes that the Passaquans are beings, gender fluid beings from the future that come to him and, and tell him he needs to build this place because Passaquan is a place where all religions, all cultures, all races, all sexes kind of live in harmony. He's building his own utopia in southwest Georgia. Passaquan shares some aspects of Howard Finster's Paradise Garden in the way that both founders created this magical place to showcase their artwork for others and spirituality informs their art. But I think you're pointing to something very different in their beliefs when you explain Eddie Owens Martin's worldview. Yeah, to say the least, Eddie knew Howard. I think that's an interesting story there, that they were aware of each other. They're both self-taught artists who are making art environments in Georgia. They were in an exhibition called Missing Pieces, they actually flew up to D.C. together. There's a great story told by Howard and Eddie about this encounter where they're sitting next to each other, flying up to D.C. And it's, a, it's kind of a, you know, it's funny because their interpretation of that experience is different from one another. But, you know, Eddie, I think, compared to Howard, I, I mean, I think that people were ready maybe for Howard Finstner and his, his ideas about, you know, Jesus and Coca-Cola. I don't think people were ready in the 80s and the 70s for 
this idea of gender fluid beings from the future. Um, I think Eddie was ahead of his time. In fact, I, I'd say Howard and Eddie both were ahead of their time, but Eddie was ahead of his time. And I believe now, and the students at Columbus State, when we're talking about it, are realizing that here's this guy in 1957, he comes down from New York, he starts building this place called Passaquan. It's this place where in Southwest Georgia where all races can live in harmony, where sexuality, whether you're you know, gay or, or transgender or, or not, they, they can all live in harmony together. And, and these are really progressive ideas and, and still fairly progressive ideas. And I think that is pretty important to Eddie. And, and I often say that when, when I'm giving tours, that this, this man was ahead of his time. Oh, my goodness. In the late 1950s, this yeah. was revolutionary thinking. Michael, how did Columbus State University become involved with the property? When Eddie died in 1986, or maybe I should call him St. When St. dies in 1986, he wills the property to the Buena Vista Garden Club, basically. And they convene together and they eventually it becomes what we, we now call the Pasaguan Preservation Society. Fred Fussell, Kathy Fussell, and, and, and many other individuals who lived in Buena Vista and Columbus make it up this society and make sure it's preserved. But it is a seven acre site and it was very difficult for this group to continue to keep Pasaquan in good working order. And, and it slowly over time began to deteriorate. And, and in around 2014, I believe it was Fred Fussell wrote a letter to the Kohler Foundation and asked the Kohler Foundation to help them with the preservation efforts at Pasquan. And, and it was Ruth Kohler's kind of passion to do this. She saw the value in sites like Pasquan and even places like Paradise Gardens. So what is the role of Columbus State students and alumni in helping to restore the buildings and artwork? That's a great question because it's an important part of our curriculum at this point. But once the Kohler Foundation decided they were going to do this restoration, and it was a multi-million dollar restoration of the site, Kohler, Fred Fussell, and the former director of the Kohler Foundation, Terry Yoho, reached out to the past president of the university and approached them to see if they would be interested in this collaboration. You know, and he was, the, the president said, yes, we're interested in it. Let's get the art department to be engaged in it. And, and one day he came to our department meeting at Columbus State University. I was sitting in there and he basically said, who wants to do this? And I kind of became the de facto volunteer and I've fallen in love with the site since. I, I saw the value then. I've always had an interest in self-taught visionary art. And this site alone is probably one of the more important sites in America. And so, yeah, I, I saw the value of that connected to our curriculum. So at that point, we began having students, in fact, our caretaker that lives out there now, it was a former student of mine working on the site directly with these professionals in the field. So with Parma Conservation and International Artifacts. And they worked with that group for 
two and a half years, they finished the preservation work out there around 2016, little midway through 2016. And after that, the university took ownership of it. Since then, we have students working out there as docents. We have students interning with the, the university archives, where we archive thousands of drawings and objects and clothing and things like that that Eddie Martin created. Students develop exhibitions that are both on a national scale and also locally of the work. So, you know, one of our missions right away at the university was to begin to tell Eddie's story and make sure that people realize the value of this work. And so students are really a key component of that. For example, right now we have um, a student in chemistry and a group of students painting and we're, we're beginning the second restoration process of the paint because we've had what we call secondary efflorescence on the surface of some of the paint and we're working with chemistry students to solve that problem and they're shipping off some of the samples that we're making to Auburn and Auburn is testing these samples for us and we're coming up with a solution to this problem. So a place like Passaquan is continually in flux and we're constantly, you know, in this restoration stage. And so much rich experience for students. Yes, to say the least, it's a, you know, it's experiential learning site. The other thing we do out there, which is kind of interesting, is we bring in what we call resident artists. So we bring in artists that are inspired by the site and make art in response to the site. So those artists might come to Pasquan, but even maybe come to Columbus State University and give lectures about their work. So the art department is constantly kind of engaged with this site throughout uh, an academic year. With seven acres of land and you mentioned thousands of works, I realize it's difficult to boil down to the essential. But Michael, if there are just a few pieces or works that embody St. Ohm's spirit the most, the highlights of the art environment, would you describe them? Yeah, that's a, that is a really difficult, uh, a difficult question because it's funny. Some of my students say this. They say, oh, every time you're out here, you say, this is your new favorite spot. That Pasaquan, oh, this is your favorite spot. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you a couple places at the site, two spots that I've really grown to, to love. One is the most beautiful propane shed in all of Southeast Georgia, maybe in the United States. It sits at the very back on the... I guess it would be on the northernmost point of Pasaquan. And it's this shed that uh, there's a wall with snake, undulating snakes that run all the way to it. It's probably a hundred yards long, this wall. And then, you, and then it runs into this propane shed. And on the propane shed, there's this large cylinder form. And then it, it peaks. And then on the top, there's a, there's a cross. When you go to Pasaquan, you'll see symbols from almost every religion in the world. But this is a cross, like a, a Christian cross right at the top. And the reason I love this shed is, is that there are all these small medallions that cover this white shed, this propane shed. 
and they're all concrete medallions and they're all painted in these bright colors. And it's like this trial ground for St. Omar. He's thinking about different patterns and different symbols. He's figuring this out on the shed. So it's probably one of the more decorative elements of the space. And I fell in love with that really early on. I think now my favorite spot is what we call the ceremonial sand pit. And the reason that is, is there's these staircases that walk, that come down to the sand pit from what we call the wellhouse pagoda. It's a pagoda-like form over the top of a well. And inside of that, there's these mandalas on the ceiling, on the, on the walls. And there's these videos of St. Omar. He would come out onto the bridge of the wellhouse pagoda. He would talk to groups of people down below them in the sand pit. And then he'd come down those stairs in, in, in his ceremonial garb because he'd make all his costumes <laughs> as well. He looked like uh, some kind of um, somewhere between boy George and some Aztec God, you know, and he'd come down <laughs> these stairs and he'd do these ceremonial dances in the sand pit. And, and so it's, it's like this gathering place. And we hosted uh, one of our resident artists was a composer who wrote an opera on the life of Eddie Martin. And we, we did the first version of this opera. It was called Eddie's Stone Song, The Odyssey of the First Passacoyan. We did the first version of this opera in this sandpit. And so in many ways, that sandpit has become this place where people go and they, we have you know, musicians. We had Lonnie Holly play out there during the pandemic for the album we created. And, and so it's just this gathering spot and, and it's just this beautiful part of Passaquant. So that's a quick version, but I, I, there's so many other places out there that I'm still in love with. Oh, Michael McVaults, this has been fascinating. Thank you so very much for introducing us to Passaquant. Yes, thank you for having me, and I hope to see some of you out at Passaquan. We also have a thing we call Passafest, which is a music and art festival out at Passaquan on April 16th this year, but we've been doing it for the last two years, uh, obviously not during the pandemic, but now we're going to do it again. Michael McFalls, Professor of Art at Columbus State University and Director of Passaquan. More information is on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, we'll hear how the Alvin Ailey dance composition Revelations inspired the new exhibition at the Atlanta Botanical Garden. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, 
we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Robert Battle was a teenage boy when he saw the Alvin Ailey dancers perform their signature work, Revelations, and that inspired him to become a professional dancer. Now he's celebrating 10 years as Ailey Artistic Director. The award-winning artist and sculptor Christine Mays was so inspired by the Ailey Dance Troupe, she created a series of figures titled Rich Soil. Her metal wire sculptures are on display now at the Atlanta Botanical Garden as part of their Orchid Days exhibition. Christine Mays joins me now via Zoom, along with Mary Pat Matheson, the president and CEO of the Atlanta Botanical Garden. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lois. It's always wonderful to be with you. Likewise. Mary Pat, when did you first become aware of Christine's work? This is one of those extraordinary shows that came together because of networking and great colleagues. So a colleague and friend of mine, Kate Markert, who is the CEO of Hillwood Museum in Washington, D.C., reached out to me, I guess it was early fall of last year, to say that they had Christine's wonderful exhibition, Rich Soil, there in Washington, D.C., and what a success it was and that it would be traveling back to San Francisco where Christine lives in January. And Kate wondered if we might be able to talk to Christine about the possibility of doing a show en route before it went back to San Francisco. And it just so happened that we were just in the design of our Orchid Days show. And I mean, it was like pure serendipity meant to happen. And so I reached out to Christine and Christine, I'll let you speak, but you you talked about how you would heard about our garden from a good friend who lived in Atlanta, I believe. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. So her beautiful work is here among our beautiful orchids. Christine, I love this quote from you. My sculptures create a form that reveals an invisible occupant, a soul, a life. I often say I'm breathing life into wire. Why do you use metal wire as your medium? Wow. I originally stumbled upon the wire in the process of creating works out of, out of glass beads. And having had a background in artwork in which I, I experimented quite a bit and explored different mediums, when I stumbled upon the wire, I just found myself completely fascinated with it. And I liked the feel of it. And it felt like drawing in the sense of, you know, like if you see sketches with cross hatching, that sort of has come into play with this building of, of wire and pieces being overlapped. 
but in general, I work with wire partially because I, I like the feel of it. The other reason is that it's allowed me to create in a way that I think will be long lasting. This material is often used in construction sites and has the durability to last for 70 plus years. So it, it feels good to know that I have work that will, will be around for a few decades. And the pieces seem so intricately made. They almost impart filigree. That's how they strike me. But because they're so intricate, I wondered how long it takes to create one of these works. I mean, it's very labor intensive. I end up working anywhere between 70 to 100 hours on each piece. Hmm. I mentioned in the intro that seeing revelations inspired this series, Rich Soil. Would you tell us more how seeing revelations translated to what we see on view at the Botanical Garden? Sure. This is a sort of a wild story. I had a friend that I would speak to probably once a week, and we would talk just about life and what was happening in our lives. And he kept referring to revelations and I hadn't seen it at the time. And so after a period of time of hearing him go back to just the thoughts that were, he would always say that, he, that what he was speaking about was played out in the dancers. So, you know, curiosity overtook me and I, and I went and I watched it, just watched it online. And I found myself thinking more and more about it. And so this series of work is inspired really by lots of the emotion and the um, response to the messages behind revelations and the idea of exalting humanity and just the wrestling that we go through with regard to what's happening in the world. And so while physically there are pieces that, you know, give the same sort of gestures and body movements, and I have created dancers that are on display, my hope is that the emotion behind that powerful dance piece comes through in my work as well. It's so fitting that Orchid Days opened here in Atlanta the same weekend that Ailey was performing at the Fox. Do you know if any of the dancers got to see these sculptures? I'm not sure if they have. My hope is that they have, though, especially, you know, hearing that they were right there in Atlanta. It would be exciting to know if that actually happened. I wondered, in creating the actual figures and the sculpture, did you look back at images or videos of the dancers? I did. I, I really found myself drawn to the photographs that are often taken of the dancers, just in the way that they come together. They do movements that are, that are in groupings. I mean, that's, that was part of the inspiration in creating several installations where it was multiple pieces working together. And then also 
there's a certain beautiful aspect of dance. I think everyone's free when they're dancing. And that's like the biggest expression of freedom that I could think of. And so that's why I wanted to create these bodies that are that are essentially, you know, giving honor to the ancestors and and the idea of them dancing up out of the soil. That's why it's rich soil. Their blood, sweat, and tears are in the soil. And here the spirits of these ancestors come spiraling up and dancing within the freedom that they now have because they're ancestors. Yes. When I spoke with Robert Battle just before the Ailey dancers arrived, in our conversation, he said, sometimes to get to beauty, you have to see some of the ugly truths. Dance has a way of being able to express those truths in a way that people can hear. And I thought about that as I looked at the images of your work in the way that you honor the ancestors, but also acknowledge the pain they had to endure in some of the ghost-like appearances of the figures, perhaps the dresses without bodies? Yes. I always find myself looking at the essence of what comes forth out of people, you know, in the sense of seeing beyond the surface. And so by creating the actual surface and creating these bodies that are within clothing, you can kind of form your own thoughts. It gives a window for people to reflect. And with with the um, sculptures being created in such a way that figures are moving within their clothing, it often evokes thoughts of various people will look at something and they'll say, oh, that's my, that's my best friend, or that's my aunt, or you know, they'll, they'll see the, the person that comes to mind simply through the gestures that are created with the works. And what's especially attractive about these metal wire vignettes, going back to your medium, is the way you can see through them, unlike marble or clay. How does this add another layer to the figures themselves looking through them. I've noticed that, I mean, the the work itself can be viewed in so many different ways. I know that depending on the lighting, you know, you get shadows. Some people look at the various configurations that are created within the wire in the way in which it's overlapped like as far as looking at the patterns that are created. So it can be seen just for its physical aesthetics, or you can look at it from a more spiritual level, or even a scientific one. People who are into architecture look at it as a CAD, (laughs) as some sort of CAD imagery. Interesting. Mary Pat, how have the orchids been arranged to complement Christine's sculptures. Well, one of my favorite things about this show is that we have a lot of dancing lady orchids, which are these beautiful orange and white orchids. And 
we looked at them next to Christine's work and they're images of the same thing. They're like images of revelations in different ways. One is a living orchid and the other is Christine's beautiful artwork. So we've also used colors that are complementary. And then Christine's work is spread throughout the Orchid Center. And also when you enter the conservatory out front, we have her work in one of our water features. So it really is front and center from the very beginning. And Christine and I were talking when she was here installing. We had a lovely dinner one night with her family and friends. And I led to Christine, you said, when I'm in galleries, I always feel like I need to do new work to make each show unique and different. When she shows her work in a garden like ours, it changes wherever you put it. And so one piece may have a whole different look when it's among the orchids at our garden versus when it's outside at Hillwood Museum. So the complement of art and nature to me is one of the most beautiful things we can do together. And this show is a great example of that. The dancing orchids with these beautiful dancing figures is just spectacular, serenely beautiful. Truly. Christine, where do these figures live when they're not visiting other museums and gardens? Actually, to be honest, they'll probably live in my studio. And more than likely, once the show comes back, they'll be shown, you know, the installations will be shown separately, more than likely, you know, to piggyback off of what Mary Pat just said, it has been completely joyful for me to watch the pieces change, to watch not only the context of the work change, but visually the work has changed with each each place that it's visited. And so to see it in Atlanta was just so exciting because it definitely looks, I mean, every single show is completely different. And so even for me, I look at it as a very different experience. And so it's been exciting to discover that. Sculptor and artist Christine Mays with Mary Pat Matheson, the president and CEO of the Atlanta Botanical Garden. The Orchid Days show is on view through April 10th. More information is on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, our celebration of outdoor art concludes with an epic sculpture on view at Georgia Tech. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. The legacy of world-famous Atlanta architect and artist John Portman can be seen all over our city. Portman, who passed away in 2017 at the age of 93, created his final sculpture, Koan, for the campus of his alma mater, Georgia Tech. Standing 40 feet tall, the koan's creation came by way of a very eclectic process involving a luxury bath company, a boat manufacturer, 
and even a supercomputer at Georgia Tech School of Aerospace Engineering. Last fall, members of that unusual team, Stanley Mickey Steinberg, Portman's lifelong collaborator, and Russell Adams, the president and chief design officer at MTI Baths, joined City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. Steinberg first explained why Portman wanted to name the sculpture koan. It's a word that in the Buddhist religion, the, the uh, priests sit around in a circle and they discuss a subject or a thing and they spend days, if it's necessary, looking for truth. And he said, ah, George, that's great. I'm going to do this with, with these things. Three things are working together, but they're going around and around and around looking for truth. And so that's where we came with, up with the name. I love that. And my understanding is, aside from looking for truth, it's usually presented in the form of a riddle, right? That's correct. So I think the sculpture speaks so well to that because when you look at it as an outsider, it is a riddle. It is indeed. And I would love to pause here if you wouldn't mind taking a moment to describe it. All right. Well, what it is, is it's three round wings, let's call them. And they're put on top of each other, working together, tied together, except they aren't true rings. Uh, the way John designed it, he wanted them to have you know, multiple shapes. And it's interesting the way he designed it, the three shapes are identical, except for where they come touch each other. But he broke each one into two parts. And those two parts are identical. We can make them out of the same mold. So each one of those circles is made out of two identical pieces. And you wouldn't know that looking at it. Mm-mm. You can only see it if we would take a model and cut it up for you. Mm. And you can see it there. And so that that's what he, and he got on it. And he really went to town on it. <laughs> it is stunning. You have no starting point. You have no straight line anywhere on that piece. And he got excited about it. And he had been talking about doing a 12-foot one. And uh, well, Russell, tell him about how we did 12-foot one. <laughs> Yeah, I guess 12 feet didn't really happen, huh, Russell? Well, he started out having us replicate an 18-inch sculpture that was in his office. And um, we came down there, my sister and I, to meet with him. And he asked if we could replicate this little 18-inch sculpture. And uh, we said, yeah, we could, but we'd have to take it and make a rubber mold off of it. And so uh, he said, well, here, take it from the office right now and go do it. And... um, and we were, our jaws dropped because to us, it was like a priceless artifact, a masterpiece. And um, he tried to hand us a bronze sculpture as well. And um, so we didn't know what had just happened. And we stumbled out of there and uh, created a replica by taking his original and making a rubber mold and then pouring our material into it and uh, popped it off. And it looked just like his original. And we brought that back to him and said, here it is. And he said, well, can you make one 21 feet was his first challenge. And then, and uh, that's where we said, well, we took it back and talked to our engineers and scratched our heads and talked to all of our vendors and uh, figured out how we could make it 21 feet, which was quite co- complicated for us. We make bathtubs and sinks and showers and things like that. But the way we were able to take the 18 inch piece and make it larger was we 3D scanned it and made a 
exact 3D replica and then 3D printed that on a smaller scale. We figured out how to build that and it was gonna be built out of uh, steel with fiberglass and resin and our material on top of it. And um, we brought that proposal to him and he said, yeah, that, that, that looks great and slid it off the table and said, this is the one I really want. <laughs> And, and do, it was the do you think he piece. knew the whole time? Yeah. Oh, he did. It was it was a master plan. He was he was testing us the whole time. Oh he, my he gave gosh. us small little challenges, and after after we met each challenge, then it got bigger and bigger. Wow. We went from there to uh, realizing we couldn't make that sculpture out of the materials you normally do. Normally, you make make them out of uh, metal. But we're in an area where we have remnants of hurricane. Right. We need to be able to take the wind. And those three things are sails. You put them upright <laughs> and they're like big sails. As we talked about it, we realized we couldn't make this out of materials that we normally use to build them. It, they're not strong enough. And the only materials that we, anybody knew that was strong enough was carbon fiber. And that's what they build airplane wings out of and spaceships and all of that. But you know, I know how to build buildings and I know how to build, build big buildings. And I built them out of steel and concrete, but I've never built anything like this out of carbon fiber. So we went around and around, and finally we came up with the idea of going to the aerospace uh, school at Georgia Tech. That makes sense. They're the best in the country. In the meantime, Mr. Portman, he was very ill. He called me in one day, and he said, you know, Mickey, y'all going to have to build this for me. I'm going to be here. And like I always said to him, Mr. Portman, we'll get it built. Hmm. And I made a commitment that I wasn't sure how could, we could do. <laughs> and I couldn't have done it without Russell and his people. We had to find people who could work with this material. We had to figure out collectively how to build it. And that was a two and a half year process. And I think I heard originally you were hoping to have it done within seven months to a year. That's correct. Yeah, that's a lot longer, huh? Yeah. You guys really persevered with this project. There were a lot of complications. Yeah, it was a long time on that kind of testing, but we started the project in 2015 right. when we first started talking about it with Mr. Portman and didn't uh, get it erected until late 2020. So it took about five years from that's our side. Amazing. And when he originally approached you, was it because of his desire to have your materials on the finish? Yes. So we were building shower pans for the Hotel Indigo in Atlanta, which is one of his properties. And we were building the shower pans out of our material we called Sculpture Stone, which is solid surface material. It's ground minerals and resin and engineered stone, basically. And he liked that surface a lot. Uh, his uh, VP, uh, Rob Halverson, who's now president and runs Portman Associates, had done a tour at MTI and had seen some small little sculptures we'd made out of the same material. And he brought back that story to Mr. Portman, who wanted to come tour at MTI. And unfortunately, he wasn't able to because he became sick. But we brought him samples of the material and built the replicas I was talking about in our material. And that's what he wanted the, uh, the feel and the look of the outside of the sculpture to be. Had your company ever taken on jobs as basically you became project managers for this, right? Yes. We've never done anything in that capacity. We're used to uh, working with world-class architects and we're used to doing custom bathtubs and custom showers and custom bathing products, but nothing on, on this level at all. So the original 21-foot sculpture we were going to build all in-house at MTI, 
But when wow. it became 40 feet, that's when we had to look to the outside and we pulled in some of our vendors who supply us with resins and they supply, you know, these, these, our sculpture stone material I'm talking about is high performance resin mixed with ground minerals. And those same resins are used in carbon fiber and using other um, high-tech composites. And so we worked with our vendor and said, who else works in these materials? And he came with a list of people that work in carbon fiber. And so kind of outsourced that part and had to interview a bunch of different companies that could do that part of the, of the build. You needed a place that could house and build something that was so much larger than anything you would normally ever deal with. Correct. So we had to find a much, much larger uh, milling machine. And so we looked into the boating industry and we found a company that makes 50 foot power boats out of carbon fiber. And they have a big, big building with a giant CNC machine where you take a big, big block of, of foam and you use this machine to mill out what becomes the boat, that becomes a boat mold with they live the carbon fiber. So in this case, they were able to, uh, to build these molds, these two molds, one piece at a time in this giant machine. The boats that this guy produced, where he uses this material is on the hulls of the boat. And uh, I think his boats will go over 100 miles an hour. Oh my gosh. They go 120, some of them up to 150 miles an hour and they're 50 foot long boats that'll cut through the ocean. <laughs> Have either of you ever been on a boat going that fast? That sounds ridiculous. Not me. Not, Not me either. either. <laughs> oh my gosh. A lot of those boats are sold over in uh, Saudi Arabia and, and in the Middle East to oil sheiks and people like that. They'll fly a plane over and load the boat into the plane and fly oh. it back over to, to Dubai. That's just absolutely nuts. It's also really kind of insane that a bath company and a boat company ended up getting involved to make a sculpture with someone who's much better known for making buildings. We worked together, eventually brought the six pieces to Georgia Tech, and then that's where the fun started. One of the hard things were that whole thing is supported on three structures that hold it, take it into the ground. Yeah, I'm glad you're talking about that. It almost looks like it's balancing impossibly. The thing we had to do is hide all those connections. We've got connections in there that are huge, hmm. but we managed to shape them where they would fit inside the structure. Can either of you speak a little to how it's viewable from different angles and what changes with lighting? So when you walk around the sculpture, even though it's three rings that are identical, you can't tell. And when you walk around, it looks like it's moving and they all look a little bit different. Also, the light from the sun comes into play and the shadows uh, change it a bit. And uh, you can kind of walk through it and experience the sculpture. And Mr. Portman had told me that he wanted the students to be able to kind of walk around it, walk through it and experience it differently from different angles. And he really achieved that. So you, when, you, when you go there and see it, it's just amazing. And it, it does change completely when you, when you walk around and look at it from different vantage points. What are some places in the city where people who might be unfamiliar with Portman's artwork, but know his buildings well, could go and see some of his paintings and sculptures? His paintings and sculptures are in all of his buildings in Atlanta. So if anyone wants to go down to any of those buildings, there are commissions from other artists, but most of the art is John Portman art. And there are big paintings, small paintings, and larger sculptures. The, the uh, SunTrust Plaza, there's a lot of the art in there. And there's a piece of art in there he did 
which you can see it's a little bit kin to the piece we did. Oh. Only it's made out of, it's indoors. What a fun adventure for Atlantans if they weren't familiar to be able to sneak around downtown Atlanta and now look for Portman art. You know, our buildings, we did the mark. We did the Hyatt Regency. We did the... uh, Petrie Plaza? Yeah, Plaza. And (laughs) it was that work that kept Atlanta from turning into a, a parking lot. Nobody mm. was building downtown. And also every one of those buildings, when you go inside the atrium is a sculpture in itself. And if you go into even the downtown Marriott and you look up and look above you, it is designed to be a beautiful atrium that's for all the people, but it is in itself a work of art and beautiful. John Fortman's goal was that people would enjoy being in. You sit in them, you don't feel like you're being entertained or anything. You just like where you're at. Stanley Mickey Steinberg, lifelong collaborator of the legendary Atlanta architect and artist John Portman. Steinberg was joined by Russell Adams, the president and chief design officer of MTI Baths. And together, they shared the story behind John Portman's final sculpture, Co-op installed on the Georgia Tech campus. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll celebrate St. Patrick's Day with the Irish Consul General, Quiva Nee Coor. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. You can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.